about the poop. Let's talk about the poop. Boop, boop. <laughs> What's the song, Amani? Seeing okay. as your son won't do it? My four-year-old is supposed to do it, not me. <laughs> Come on, Amani. Um, what was it again? It's really complicated. It goes like... Poopy, poopy, bum, bum. Poopy, poopy, bum, bum. And in palliative care, we like a poopy bum. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. All right. Let's the nurses serious, might disagree. But... Okay. So, we're going to talk about constipation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we need to start by um, telling uh, our listener um, how important... Hopefully listeners. Hopefully. <laughs> how important uh, constipation is as a topic in palliative care. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any stories, Jody, that would I tell import the importance? The importance. I tell one story about a patient on our unit. She came in for pain, and we got her pain under control, but then, of course... We caused her a bunch of constipation uh, because of getting her pain in, under control. And so we were holding her on the unit. She really wanted to go home, but we're like, well, like we got to make sure you can poop before you go home. And she was there for a few days. And finally, one day, one of our doctors was walking down the hallway, the one who was looking after her, and she came out of her room and she raised her arms and she said, Go Brown! Yeah, like touchdown. Yeah, but yeah it was a touchdown. Yeah, she was yeah. very excited. Yeah. Uh, so she got to go home. And did the doctor high five her? Totally, yeah. There we go. We don't know which doctor does that. <laughs> That's awesome. What about you, Allison? You always have the great stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a scary story. Um, we had an 80, a woman in her 80s who was on the unit. And um, this was quite early in my career. And we were controlling her pain with some opioids. And she developed constipation. And um, we were going about the business of um, trying to get her to poop with laxatives, but I wasn't too concerned about things. And then uh, she developed increasing abdominal pain, and we did an x-ray, and we found air under the diaphragm, which basically mm-hmm. signifies that her bowels had perforated, yeah. um, and it was just due to constipation. Jeez. So this can be real serious. Yeah. So... Yeah, so maybe we should go next to defining constipation. Um, we were talking about the Rome criteria, and there seems to be Rome criteria for a lot of different poop things, like <laughs> the Romans really like irritable bowel syndrome has a Rome criteria. They always meet in Rome. Yeah, and we're not going to pretend we know it off by heart, but you had some of the criteria there about frequency and. Yeah, my my big um, lesson for learners is that most people will only ask the patient about how often have you been pooping or when did you last poop Um, but frequency is only one of the definitions of constipation Uh, so in general we would like to have bowel movements um, every two days or some people would say three times a week but we're also looking at bowel movements that are soft so you need to ask about the consistency and we are also looking for the fact that a patient isn't straining Um, so they might be having bowel movements regularly but they're straining and they're hard and that would still be considered constipation Uh, kind of like that would be just squeezing out um, a little bit of the toothpaste from a toothpaste tube um, regularly but you're still full of toothpaste or poop in this case (laughs) 
I'm just getting really bad visual images. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so. We talk about poop a lot. Okay. Okay. We're all pretty used to this. So, Amani, why is constipation such an important topic? Mm, like is palliative care. Yeah. Well, we definitely cause a lot of it. Um, and also our patient population, uh, we were kind of chatting earlier before we, we recorded here, Allison, we were talking about how we want to differentiate constipation in our population compared to um, the population without cancer, cancer-related pain, or palliative care needs. Um, because in the general public, we often talk about constipation as being an issue related to lack of mobility and water and fiber intake. And that's pretty true for the general public. But for our population, we're talking about other causes, often being pharmacologic in nature, drugs we prescribe, such as opioids most commonly, as well as anticholinergic medications that can dry up the gut. Um, we also we do have dehydration and poor oral intake in our population as well as low mobility. Not to say that we can necessarily change those things, just to say that it's a common problem in, mm -hmm. in that population. And then there's other things. Pathology matters in the gut as well as things like hypercalcemia of malignancy, for example, that can trigger constipation. So it's a very common concern. That's one reason why it's important. The second reason is it can cause big problems. I think your story really illustrated the extreme of that, of, um, you know, this kind of picture of like a toxic megacolon perforation and, um, and unfortunately death due to it. Um, and people often don't realize that it can be that complex. Thankfully, it's not usually, but it can cause a lot of um, discomfort in the mm -hmm. abdomen, nausea, poor appetite, um, and things like, such as overflow diarrhea, which we can get into as well going forward and then chronically we talk about things like hemorrhoids and fissures and also we know that emptying the bladder is related to can be impacted by severe constipation so sometimes if it's severe enough it can cause some incomplete bladder emptying or urinary retention any, wow. do you think i've covered that or is there anything else no Should i we? think you covered that very well you sure did <laughs> oh, thank um, you. so how do we assess it then amani yeah, so that's a good question, and I think in um, the research, there's been uh, we've had a hard time looking at uh, objective parameters for assessing it. So we rely on our history, going back to the criteria you were talking about. How often is somebody having a bowel movement? What's the consistency? There's the Bristol stool chart, which goes all the way from little rabbit pellets, <laughs> sorry, to like liquid diarrhea. Um, but we we know we want like a soft consistency. Um, one or two pieces in a bowel movement. I get really detailed when I ask my patients about bowel movements. They probably think it's a bit weird, but, um, and also, you know, size. So obviously if it's a small bowel movement, then I'm still worried about incomplete emptying. Um, the straining piece is important as well. Would you add anything to the history piece there? No, I, I think, um, I don't know if this is a good place to add it, but uh, sometimes when I'm taking that history, and then I tell patients, oh, you know, I think you probably have some constipation. You're, you know, only having, say, a bowel movement, you know, every four days. And then they say, well, I'm not eating much. So, mm, therefore, good one. I shouldn't, I don't, why would I have bowel movements? What, what's your answer to that? Yeah, so I would say constipation can happen even in people with poor intake. And we would expect a bowel movement, you know, once every three days, even if there is very poor PO intake, as we just have even mucosal secretions, a little bit of intake, um, 
Yeah. We got a microbiome in there that's mm-hmm. producing a lot of stuff. I remember mm-hmm. one physician telling us it should still be about a cup of poop. I think she said a cup of poop a day. Oh, that Even seems like a eating. lot. Does it? Maybe it was every three days or something like that. But I, yeah. I vividly remember her saying a wow. cup of poop. <laughs> I think we can all agree, though, that... It's better um, than the toothpaste, too. <laughs> I don't know. Both are bad. <laughs> but yeah. shall we all agree that when a patient says, well, I haven't eaten, therefore, you know, I, I don't think I need to have a bowel movement, we would all say to them, no, we need to have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. and that is a common thing that comes up for sure immediately. Yeah, yep. so that's a good one. Um, so other than history-taking... Certainly you can do a physical exam and look for abdominal distension, not super specific. Um, There's also this idea that we can take an abdominal x-ray, a flat plate, and look for stool load there. There's been some question, there's been one study by Dr. Carell out of Australia a few years back where he looked at what's called the constipation score, which is where we divide the large colon into four quadrants on abdominal x-ray. I'm making the X sign because it looks like an X going through the umbilicus. Um, So it corresponds to the ascending, transverse descending colon and the rectosigmoid. And so you're looking at stool load in each of these four quadrants. And there's like a whole score for it and everything. I don't use that in clinical practice typically. But anyways, that study showed poor correlation with patient reports. And I think it was like some sort of colonic transit study that they did. It was a small study, under 50 for sure, Um, so it's not the end-all and be-all. Clinically, if I'm still wondering what's going on, I will take a look at an abdominal x-ray and see if there's stool loading, um, especially at the bottom end. Yeah, like it can help you determine where it is too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about, uh, well, yeah, and I I think the other thing with an x-ray is our differential um, when we're thinking of constipation is a bowel obstruction, so... X-ray is going to tell us uh, about that as well. Yeah, right. we definitely don't want so to get there we're looking, going. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So there we're looking for distension and air fluid levels and that sort of thing. Right? What about a rectal exam? Do you have to do one on every patient that's constipated? I definitely do not. Um, I think there's maybe a bit of variation of practice, and I've seen it in you know handbooks of palliative care and things like that. But to me, I think it's a little bit invasive. What do you think? Yeah, I I have to say, you know, our patients go through a lot, and um, they are usually not keen on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so although I think there is a place for it, uh, especially if you're worried about overflow diarrhea, um, then you might want to do a rectal exam, but uh, otherwise I would say the majority of clinicians don't do rectal exams when they uh, suspect constipation. Mm-hmm. Would you guys agree that opioids are the most common cause of constipation? In our world? In our, in our world. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, Jody, what would you tell our learner? Um, or maybe learners. <laughs> Come um, on, more than one listener. <laughs> yeah. More one, than one my mom dream. and dad. One yes. <laughs> what would you tell your mom and dad, Jody, about preventing constipation? that's due to opioids. Well, shall we use your famous line, the hand that writes the prescription for the you opioids? You heard it here, folks. Dr. Murray wrote this line. <laughs> Did you write it? I have no idea. What's the line, honey? <laughs> oh, um, the way I remember it is the hand that writes the opioid disimpacts the bowel. No! <laughs> <laughs> what is it? The Jody. hand that writes the opioid is the hand that writes the laxative. 
Yes. Right. That seems more civil. And then it has to disinfect the bowel. (laughs) They don't. If it didn't work. (laughs) That's the corolla. Yeah, Yeah, that's like the the appendix one. Yeah. (laughs) So so what would you you tell people to do when they're prescribing an opioid uh, for the first time for a patient? Um, I would talk to them about how important it is to keep the bowels moving. And I think it's really important for patients to understand that no matter what non-pharmacological type things that they do, kind of talking about that North American constipation, that's not going to be overly successful in opioids. When we're using opioids, um, the majority of patients will require um, pharmacological treatment or prevention for the oh, for the constipation yeah my brain just went talk about completely. constipation here today <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> your brain working nights my brain my brain is constipated right now nice nice yeah nicely, nicely done so i think in general um whenever we put somebody on an opioid um we'll we'll start them off on kind of i like to do a combination of like an osmotic type of um, laxative and then more of a stimulant. What? What do you mean? <laughs> you questioning me? Um, so our go-to is something like a peg, um, the powder that you mix in liquid um, and drink just to bring, kind of helps bring more water into the bowels. And then something like a senna um, that kind of helps irritate the bowels to get things moving. Um, everybody's a little bit different in how they they do their treatment. Some will use more of like a mineral oil or a lactulose or a bisacodal. We've got kind of a few different things that we use. Um, and so the pig, what's, what are the common names for that? Laxidae, Restorelax, Miralax. Mm-hmm. There's like a million different brand names. Um, all the exact same drug. <laughs> um, and, and what's that like for people to take? So I always go through it with them. Amani disagrees with me, but um, it's a powder that gets mixed mixed in with some fluid and it only needs to be about a cup of fluid. Um, and the reason I say fluid and not water is because I can taste it in water. Mm-hmm. Most people say it She allegedly less. tastes it. It tastes like metal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it'll literally dissolve in just about mm-hmm. anything. So I, mm-hmm. I always keep that in mind because some of our patients, you know, they aren't taking as much PO or, you know, they're nauseous or don't have an appetite. So I make sure that they know it can go in pretty much anything that's palatable to them. Um, mm-hmm. It does need to be enough liquid to kind of um, get things going, but doesn't need to be like a huge glass of water like our nurses sometimes do in the unit. Um, so they take that usually once a day. Sometimes we can go up to twice a day um, just to kind of bring more water into the stool soften soften things up basically like a stool softener how long does it take to work (laughs) that one is not um overly fast so that one we're doing on a regular basis to kind of keep things at baseline um do you tell them how how fast it works the senna is kind of overnight which is why we always do at bedtime so that hopefully in the morning they wake up and they get to have a nice poop but um, i usually say a few days yeah. yeah, like yeah. it's not it a one a and done thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's really important that patients understand kind of the the reason behind why they're taking it every day and they don't just take it when they, you know, feel like they haven't gone in a few days. I usually go fairly in-depth with patients before they go home on, you know, how to take these and when to 
increase and when to decrease and things like that. And what about side effects? Side effects are kind of your, you know, bloating, <laughs> gas. Um, like, in general, it's not usually too, too bad. Yeah, I'd say cramping. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the beginning, if we've got somebody who is constipated, we can definitely cause some cramping before we get things moving. Yeah, and I think the other point you're making, which is really important, um, is that you have to negotiate these laxatives with patients. So patients who've been using laxatives in the past often have very strong opinions Mm -hmm. about what's worked. It's such a contentious topic sometimes. Yeah, Yeah. and so you can't just go to the computer (laughs) in the hospital and order something and assume that the patients will take it. You have to negotiate. Agreed. I actually really enjoy it when patients have opinions on that. I just find it um, sometimes way harder to get them on board with laxatives than it is with opioids. Oh, really? A lot of times I'm finding they have, like you say, very strong opinions. Like, I only take this when I need it, and they're talking about laxidate and, or PEG, sorry. Mm. Um, And it's really hard to get them to come around because they're so afraid. Well, often there's this component of being afraid of losing control of their bowel movements and with limited mobility that can be an issue yeah yeah and for Mm -hmm. sure if you go overboard with laxatives and you cause urgency and diarrhea um patients uh, some patients have never forgiven me for that oh no Mm -hmm. you have to yeah it can be really careful of that it's a it's a balancing act for sure yeah so what if we have the patient who comes in and they were started on some laxidae, two scoops a day, and they've been taking some Senecot, but they've upped their opioids, and now they have not had a bowel movement despite taking these things for five days. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Mm-hmm. So I think now we're talking instead of like maintenance or prophylaxis, we're talking about actual treatment. Yeah. And so there's a few different things, and this is where we get into, we start to see a lot of more variation in practice, I think. Some people would talk about oral medications, such as oral lactulose or oral bisacodyl, um, and others would talk about suppositories or even enemas. Uh, my approach, it depends certainly. Um, if I'm concerned that things are kind of bottom end, <laughs> like loaded, whether that's because of abdominal x-ray or a history where I'm concerned about overflow diarrhea, and we can talk a bit more about we can unpack that a little more <laughs> later. Um, then I might use a suppository. So I, I use a bisacodal suppository in that case, 10 milligrams per rectum. Um, lactulose, I don't love just because I find people experience a lot of cramping and mm-hmm. gassiness. And it's a sugar that ferments in the gut. So that's not one I love. And then um, enemas... I tend to reserve for when suppositories don't work, just because, again, of the invasive nature of the enemas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I'd argue a suppository is also fairly invasive. Yeah, although you're not squirting tons of fluid. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so I don't know what you think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, often going from both ends, but just keeping mm-hmm. in mind the enema, you know, will only really reach the sigmoid colon, so mm-hmm. that is not going to be your... Uh, one-stop answer to this Mm -hmm. Um, and then knowing that with the laxidae you can go as high as you know four five six scoops a day if if you need to um, which is not what it says on the uh, 
um, package, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. it is appropriate because that's what's used for colonoscopy preps. And I know that's also used for pediatric, um, consti- like mm-hmm. the pediatric population of constipation as they all constantly titrate up. Yep, they can go Peg. through good mm-hmm. doses. Mm-hmm. Like, so like there's, yeah. Yeah, so you can go high. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is out there for opioid-induced constipation? Well, we're kind what of... What are the sexy drugs? Oh, yeah. What do you call them? The Pomoras. I don't call Whoa. them that. The peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists. That's where it comes from. Pomoras. Pomoras <laughs> likes that one. Yeah, yeah I think it sounds sultry. It's a sultry drug. It's a sultry So tell drug. us about these sultry drugs, right? <laughs> so basically, these are... Think of them as... Um, naloxone cousins they only Mm -hmm. act peripherally so naloxone is an opioid antagonist but these are modified so that they don't cross the blood-brain barrier and they act peripherally in the gut so they do not cause withdrawal correct support correct (laughs) so naloxagol is pegylated um so it's bound to um similar I think of it as similar to PEG. I don't know if that's right or not. A a molecule that doesn't allow it to cross the gut um, membrane. And the other one, uh, relator methyl naltrexone, simply doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier by its chemical nature. I won't pretend to understand the details of that. It's methylated. Yeah, that's my guess. So when did you use which one? So that's a good question. I think so far there's been, from what I understand, very little evidence about when to use one versus the other. I saw recently there was a BMJ study, not in the cancer population. Um, I think it was opioid chronic pain. Uh, But basically they were looking at Relistor with naloxagol rescue, and they found that effective. Now I haven't seen any studies the opposite way. Um, Relistor or methyl naltrexone is subcutaneous injections usually every other day as needed and then naloxagol is kind of a daily thing you start with Um, I think it's so far for us clinically in practice it's been what's been available exactly yeah the methyl naltrexone was was out of stock for a really long time so and naloxagol kind of came in at that time so we started using it quite a bit more often Mm -hmm. I mean you could say there's definitely benefits to using a PO medication, but Mm -hmm. if you have like a severe nausea or something like that due to the constipation, the methyl naltrexone would be good for that. Mm -hmm. Problem with both of these, if I could get practical, is uh, neither of them are covered by most plans um, and can get quite pricey. So both of them we try often to just use as a rescue and get things moving again for a few days while they're in hospital and then try to get them just back on their maintenance kind of peg and senna to go home again. So there are certainly some patients that have to be on it long term, but sometimes it can just be used as a rescue for a few days. Yeah, and I pretty much um, will always do an abdominal x-ray before uh, prescribing these because uh, it is they are contraindicated in bowel obstruction. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you are treating constipation before you prescribe them. And um, side effects are cramping and nausea, so mm-hmm. just like any other. And also um, headache and hyperhidrosis. Mm, have oh. not seen that. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite high for hyperhidrosis, although I haven't seen many patients talk no. about that. I have had a patient with headache, though. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, the other cool thing about them is generally you get uh, laxation, which is a new word for having a bowel movement. Yeah, pooping. Um, within. <laughs> Why do we need a new word for pooping? <laughs> 
Well, because you always need more words for things that we're uncomfortable about. Um, Within four hours of giving this drug. So you you get pretty immediate results uh, with both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're expensive, I think. They are, yeah. They're quite expensive. They can be, and they're not covered by any of our provincial plans. Mm -hmm. So that's where my stress comes in. Mm. Any other drugs, Jody? Just yeah. to kind of list a few that we probably won't talk about in much detail, but well, we could talk about the percalipride a little bit. I'd say that when um, we've started using more and more recently, and that's more I would consider it more like a motility agent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on label for for idiopathic mm-hmm. constipation, constipation and off label for opioid induced constipation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that one can be quite beneficial as well as if we think it's is like a motility type of issue. Mm-hmm. And we've had a fair amount of success with that. And again, not covered, so again, my stress, but um, <laughs> can be quite useful. Yeah. Have you found it useful anecdotally? I think you mm-hmm. two probably have more experience with it clinically than I do. Yes, I have. Yeah, I've definitely mm-hmm. had some patients. Yeah, 5-HC4 antagonist, mm-hmm. and um, it, its big deal is that it... Um, improves bowel motility right from gastric emptying Mm -hmm. all the way down to the colon. So Mm -hmm. unlike all of the others we've been talking about, which just work with colonic motility, Mm -hmm. this will actually help with gastric emptying and uh, small bowel motility as well. Similarly different than metoclopramide, which is more gastric and, you know, Mm -hmm. initial small bowel. Exactly. And it kind of came, because there was an old one, right, that had to be pulled from the market because of QT. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, Cisopride. Mm-hmm. Back yeah. in my day, <laughs> before my day, yeah. Um, but but the percalipride has kind of been developed um, without those QT prolongation concerns. Allegedly, I mean, so far, isn't it post marketing where this? Comes it was it, the, I, everything. I recall the studies were you know they they looked into it in quite some some depth For in terms of yeah because so far so good yeah mm-hmm. so yeah it's out there. Um, but again, you know, I think uh, it's all about the basics, mm-hmm. which is preventing it. It really is. Okay. What more do we have to say about poop, gals? Hmm. Um, well, we were going to talk a little bit more about overflow diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So overflow diarrhea, is it, is it an overrated problem? Well, what is it? <laughs> So I guess when we talk about overflow diarrhea, we're talking about somebody who has some distal impaction, like, again, in the rectosigmoid area. And because of that impaction, there is still peristalsis above that, and so you get this sort of liquid stool forming that leaks around and bypasses that impacted area. So good visual. It's really gross. Um, But what you see clinically is small amounts of loose stools Sometimes frequently, sometimes not. But a feeling of incomplete evacuation. Would you add anything? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other than it's, it's hard to convince patients that you think they're constipated when they're having these loose stools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, if you do suspect that, get an x-ray mm-hmm. um, so that you can be sure that that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Or again, you know, do a rectal exam uh, if you do palpate some hard stool, then then you have your answer, but um, 
I think we need to prove that before mm. we and tell I'm, patients that we're assuming it's overflow. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was being cheeky saying, is it overrated? Because sometimes I think um, people assume that it's overflow diarrhea when it could just be regular old loose stool, soft bowel movements. Yeah. I'd be pretty mad if somebody put me on more laxatives if it was just... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I heard in Britain, they actually make medical students taste all the laxatives. Do they? Yeah. That's good. We should they do should. that to medical yeah. students here. Okay. okay. And to physicians who think that you can't taste. I was kind of afraid taste. of where that sentence is ending. My mind is just, we need to stop talking about food. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you, taste. listeners, for listening. Um, it's it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. but it I mean, is. Pamora is. But yes. No. Well, yes. We're trying to make it sexier. <laughs> Imani can make anything so. It's incredibly important in palliative care, and so we appreciate your interest in this topic. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.